Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Suvi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And on the podcast today, we have Jie Li, a Loeb Associate Professor of the Humanities in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University. Jie is here to talk about her book, Utopian Ruins, a Memorial Museum of the Mao Era, which was published in 2020 by Duke University Press. In Utopian Ruins, Jie Li traces the creation, preservation, and elision of memories about China's Mao Era by envisioning a virtual museum that reckons with both its utopian yearnings and its cataclysmic reverberations. Lear proposes a critical framework for understanding the documentation and transmission of the socialist past that mediates between nostalgia and trauma, anticipation and retrospection, propaganda and testimony. Assembling each chapter like a memorial exhibit, Lee explores how corporeal traces, archival documents, camera images and material relics serve as commemorative media. The book provides a creative and nuanced approach to memories of the Maoist era and their various mediations for anyone interested in China, museum studies, and media studies. We will be discussing Utopian Ruins in more detail with Jie, who you have the pleasure of joining us on the show today. Jie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, and thank you so much, Sidi, for giving me this opportunity to talk about my new book. Um, It's a real honor and pleasure to be here. It's an honor and pleasure for me as well. I'd like to begin by asking you about your background and how you grew to be interested in doing research on the documentation and transmission of China's socialist past. Yeah, thank you. So um, I I spent my childhood in China, um, Harbin and Shanghai specifically, um, and I moved to the United States at the age of 11. Um, And actually throughout middle school, high school, and even college, Um, I often interviewed my family members, my parents and grandparents and their relatives, neighbors and friends, uh, because I was uh, hoping to draw on their experiences and memories as material for creative writing, uh, fiction and nonfiction. For a long time, I thought I wanted to be a fiction writer. Um, And then in college, um, I got quite interdisciplinary training in literary and film studies, anthropology, also cultural history. Um, and eventually turned like a constellation of these kinds of oral histories into um, my first book. And it was, um, it's called Shanghai Homes, Palimpsests of Private Life. And I did an interview um, with uh, New Books Network on that book as well. It's um, um, oral histories with uh, residents of two um, neighborhoods in Shanghai. Um, from the 1930s to the 2000s. And I was really interested in how personal memories were brushing against the grain of larger, broader historiographies and how private homes can become a repository of um, different historical periods that are layered together. And so in these kind of interview processes, I realized that the most interesting and moving and sometimes absurd and tragic stories I heard over the years um, from my elders uh, pretty much took place in the Mao years before my birth um, from the 1950s to the 1970s. And it's it's a really contradictory period because it's, it seems to be filled with idealistic passion on the one hand and mass violence on the other. So um, it seemed to leave um, the people I talked to with this really 
complex mixture of emotions that I, I would summarize it as trauma and nostalgia, but also guilt and pride at the same time. And everybody had very different assessments and understandings of this period. And sometimes their narratives would be contradicting each other. And there's a lot of conflicts also at the dinner table, uh, sometimes seeing the socialist past as the good old days or, you know, like, or terrible days and things are much better now. And I feel like that kind of debate was mirrored in um, these broader debates about the Chinese revolution and its legacies in a broader intellectual atmosphere. So, um, you know, seeing this period mainly in terms of its utopian ideals or the catastrophes that had happened with, the, for example, with the famine, the Cultural Revolution, the violence of this period. So this kind of gave rise also to the title of this book, uh, Utopian Ruins. And it got me thinking harder also about the mediation of memories, which I really elaborate on in the introduction, um, mediation in, in three senses. One is how do you kind of reconcile between uh, trauma and nostalgia? Um, also, how do uh, memories of the elderly generations get transmitted uh, to a younger generation if they pass away? And then also interaction of memory and media technologies, such as writing and photography and film. So people who have written down their memories or people who have photographs are able to um, remember and also transmit their memories um, to a younger generation more easily. So, um, so this kind of mediation of memories became a more sort of theoretical question that I wanted to explore also. In, in this new book, Utopian Ruins. Yeah, that's um, that that really comes out in the chapters, especially how you would how you just um, kind of pointed out that um, you were kind of basically collecting this material, as you mentioned, for creative writing, and that really reads through 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 your current writing, especially. Um, you know, from the very beginning in your introduction, you have this beautiful quote, which I'm going to read out to the audience. Um, starts with the memory environment of the People's Republic may be likened to an enormous garden tended by a giant, the Chinese Communist Party, that both carefully cultivates and brutishly chops off memory plants to serve its own needs, just as Maoist politics labeled cultural expressions, fragrant flowers or poisonous weeds. Yet the giant loosens its control over the garden in the post-Mao era, allowing much wild flora to grow in the cracks and ivy to extend beyond its walls, end of quote. This is such a beautiful depiction, and um, it really kind of, it, it, it unfolds throughout the chapters in Utopian Ruins, this idea of cultivating a botanic garden of memories. But perhaps you could tell us um, a bit more about the meaning behind a garden of memories that your book builds on. Yeah, thank you. So um, I felt like I, I, I thought about this garden metaphor more after the book came out, but um, and I think I, may, I might have even like renamed the book like a memorial garden instead of a memorial museum. But with the garden metaphor, I was I was hoping to rethink also what a museum is, and also to introduce a more ecological way of thinking about memory and about media. So um, sometimes museums are considered almost like mausoleums of ossified artifacts, 
But I would like to think of a memorial museum as a botanic garden to, to cultivate, to accommodate, and even to re-enliven a variety of memories. Um, so each chapter of the book uh, curates an exhibit around almost a different species of memory flora, um, you know, be it a document or a, um, uh, uh, or certain kinds of visual images or material traces. And then I look at the emergence, growth, dissemination, and sometimes also extinction um, of certain types of memories from the Maoist to the post-Mao periods. So the exhibits are not concerned with um, only the memorial artifacts per se, but also with the broader memory environment or memory ecology. So I'm defining memory ecology as um, a holistic study of the broad environment in which memory and forgetting take place. So what are the elements that contribute to the flourishing, the growth, and also the maybe the death of memories? Um, and that memory ecology is also inseparable from a broader media ecology. So um, if you um, if certain memories are allowed to be reproduced and disseminated, um, say through propaganda, then you know the memories proliferate. But censorship can actually hinder the production and dissemination of other kinds of memories. So um, the quote that you picked out, where I compared the Chinese Communist Party to a gardener, um, is definitely inspired by Mao's uh, very powerful juxtaposition uh, from the 1950s onwards of like freight fragrant flowers versus poisonous weeds. So um, this, this was a, there was a real turning point between the 100 Flowers Movement to the anti-ritis movement in 1957, where uh, cultural expressions, um, like revolutionary cultural flowers, has to be cultivated and disseminated as uh, fragrant flowers under the 100 Flowers, but then anything that might be considered feudal or bourgeois or counter-revolutionary, they're weeds that have to be uprooted. So this kind of gardening logic um, is actually a very violent logic. So it's not just an act of care. Um, but I, I think that this, this gardening logic actually provides us with another way to think about um, media propaganda and censorship beyond a totalitarian model. Uh, and to think about memory production and transmission in terms of gardening, it's a, a bit more nuanced than saying that the state has total control over people's thoughts. So my own botanical vision of the museum would ask, you know, which memories have been thriving or withering in what kind of climate and soil? And why do certain memories actually become virals, other die out, and still others mutate? Um, and how might the remediation, um, sort of how might, say, new media technologies also um, expand and also extend the, the reach of um, personal memories? So it's not just m my collecting memories, but rather how people are um, using existing media technologies to um, uh, extend the life of their own memories and how do popular and official also different kinds of you know traumatic and nostalgic memories coexist and interact with each other uh, given the various political um, cultural also technological forces so um, I really wanted to emphasize this kind of ecological way of thinking about memory and media in the book. Yeah, and if we uh, move on to the contents of your book, the first chapter titled Blood Testaments um, 
is, is one of six chapters which are each kind of framed around um, memorial exhibits. And you take the, you navigate the reader through these exhibits that are uh, testimonies of corporeal, written, photographic, cinematic, spatial, and material um, exhibitions, basically. And this first exhibition that the reader enters is the Memorial Museum um, of the Blood Testament. So it's curated around Lin Zhao's blood testaments from prison. Perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit more about Lin Zhao and why you situated her story in the first exhibition of the Memorial Museum. Yeah, thank you. That is a great question. And um I, 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 my, my answer in a nutshell, but it will require extensive explanation, is uh, blood as medium and media as blood. Um, but I, I would actually like to share with listeners how I learned about the story of Lin Zhao and how it transformed um, my book project uh, in the process. So this was actually many, 15 years ago, um, back in 2006. Um, my initial project was actually representations of the Cultural Revolution in Chinese literature and film and media, um, including fictional representations. But um, when I uh, so I, I first heard about Lin Zhao through a a, D, a VCD that my parents actually received in the mail, uh, and there was no one on the um, on the like on the, who, they, they didn't know who sent it basically, hmm. and the VCD said. In search of Lin Zhao's soul, Xin Zhao Lin Zhao the Lin Kun. So we had never heard of Lin Zhao's name before, and with a bit of curiosity and skepticism, we kind of popped it into the disc player and started watching this film. It was a documentary film, uh, and the film revealed to us that Lin Zhao was this um, Beijing University journalism student. She was born in 1932. And she came from a family, actually, also of revolutionary martyrs and was herself like a communist revolutionary youth. Um, She joined the party, actually, in her teenage years, um, even before the communist um, takeover, the 1949. And later she participated in land reform and was writing like poetry about um, um, how peasants were liberated and so on. But then, uh, by the ni- by, nineteen 19- when she was a Beida student um, in the nineteen fifties, she was condemned in the anti rightist movement for voicing critiques of the status quo. And then, she started participating in this underground publication um, or a kind of a samistat, a Chinese samistat that was trying to bear witness to uh, what was happening throughout China, which was the Great Leap. Um, Ford famine. And for for that, she was condemned as a counter-revolutionary and arrested and imprisoned from 1960 to 1968. And the extraordinary thing about her is that while she was imprisoned, she um, sometimes she didn't have pen and paper, but she was still writing and she used her own blood to write, write poetry, essays, and letters to the to the world outside and for posterity. So this film was presenting Lin Zhao's prison manuscripts in blood and was, um, you know, tracking down also her former classmates, teachers, and relatives. They all shared their uh, testimonies as well alongside photos, documents, and artifacts. Um, And then as we watched this film with skepticism, with all these questions in our minds, you know, it sort of ended with these two questions in the, in the intertitle. How does history enter memory, our memory, or will it enter our memory? So, um, and then I 
it, it, it was so intriguing. By the end of the film, I were quite con- convinced by its testimonial force. And, uh, and my parents actually like went on and made dozens of copies of the same VCD and sent it to their friends. So the, so this VCD disc itself became almost like a semi-stad, an underground publication that was circulating quite uh, virally actually through digital copy or piracy. And Vinjal's story became very well known actually over the years. And it, it really haunted me. And I, I thought I, I sought out the filmmaker I to learn more about the production and circulation of the prison manuscripts. How did he get a hold of it? How did she actually write in blood? Um, and then, you know, I learned that it was all smuggled out of prison um, in after the Cultural Revolution to uh, Lin Zhao's sister. And then uh, she donated the manuscripts to Hoover Archives in 2009. So what what, what she had, the notebooks, were actually um, blood writing that had been copied over in ink. Um, but she also, like, stamped them all over with, like, little stamps that she, she made on her own uh, with her blood. And so I paid several visits to the Hoover Archives to hand copy the manuscripts that are also, in a way, her bodily relics. I went to visit Lin Zhao's grave and learn more about the Samistad. Um, and a lot of this research really prompted me um, to make some important shifts in my dissertation project at the time uh, from just looking at representations, especially fictional retrospective representations, to the act of witnessing. Um, so not only um, looking at um, uh, fiction, but also documentation that were made at the time um, not just memory made in retrospect, but also memory that was made in in anticipation of um, to be discovered. Because in a way, Lin Zhao was writing, hoping that someone will be reading this someday. So if I circle back to this question of why do I start with Lin Zhao and her blood writings, um, it has in in, uh, in the Mao era in China is actually known quite euphemistically as the Red Era. Hong um, people um, uh, referred. So, what is it that colors those decades red? Um, I think that in in some ways, Lin Zhao and her writings, um, both the content but also the medium, that it is the blood, um, and that includes the hot blood of idealistic young people, and also the cold blood of um, pretty much state-sponsored violence. Right, so. Um, the blood speaks to revolutions, utopianism, but also to its human sacrifices. Um, so through Lin Zhao, I would like to argue that blood had sanctified, but also contaminated the revolution at the same time. So blood becomes a revolutionary medium that was used to paint utopian visions. Um, and, and Mao Zedong had quite famously called China's 600 million people poor and blank, like a blank of piece of paper on which the most you know, beautiful pictures can be painted. And, and here blood becomes both the paint and the pain of the revolution. And given that um, memorial museums around the world all commemorate victims before the victors, um, Lin Zhao's blood writings becomes a very a visceral reminder of that pain that's really reverberating also through the successive stages of the Chinese Revolution. But um, the other reason to start with Lin Zhao is my focus on media, and I th- so it's not just that blood is a medium, but rather media is almost part of a circulatory system 
that is really central to the to the health of a nation. This idea kind of goes back to uh, even Liang Qichao's writings on the role of the press. So when the media can no longer re- report on the truth, it's as dangerous as if it's there's a sort of a blockage of blood circulation. So Lin Zhao chose journalism as a career um, because she believed in the power of the written word to testify to her times, to bear witness. But when, um, when w- over the years, over the 1950s, as the hundred flowers turned into the anti-rightist movement, and when honest reporting about problems under actually existing socialism um, became considered like a counter-revolutionary crime, um, this kind of witness bearing was driven underground. It was uh, driven underground and immediately into prison and into police files. So um, Lin Zhao was quoting Lu Xun in her writing, saying that, um, you know, lies written in ink cannot be, co- uh, or truth written in blood cannot be concealed by lies written in ink. But she was also quite cynical in thinking that everything she writes will actually circulate through the arteries of the police state, right into the heart of the regime. Um, so with the blockage of public media systems, secret police files actually becomes an alternative circulatory system. And I find that to be a very intriguing idea too. How do we think about um, media as uh, in, the, in the health of the nation in terms of its circulation? Um, so there are also many other layers of meaning to her blood writing that I flesh out more in the chapter, but I, um, I've already taken way too long with this particular <laughs> chapter and should really go on to that. But because this, you know, this, this chapter is quite central to the framing of the, the book as a whole and how I'm thinking about witnessing and media. Yeah, and that's just such a fascinating story about how you even heard about Lin Zhao through this VCD. Just quickly, um, were, so your family was still in China at the time when, when this... Oh, so, uh, yeah, my, my parents live, uh, they, they lived in the United States and then um, came, went, went back to China. So they were living in China mm-hmm. and they have, I guess, uh, must have been some, uh, some of their friends who had sent them mm-hmm. the BCD and they did the same thing. So wow. um, this is actually before streaming. So later on, this film was mostly viewed through download. Yeah. Um, yeah, even I was able to find it on YouTube quite easily. So just now, as you mentioned, it's it's become quite popular. It's even accessible um, and on all kinds of sites outside of the, the kind of mainstream or, or, or Chinese um, media sites. Um, but let's let's get back to the contents of your book. So um, this this theme of power of written word and, and the police files that you were talking about just now um, continues in chapter two of your book and the surveillance files, where you look at how the Maoist era was shaped by what you call an archival regime of memory. Um, so here you look at how the Maoist dossier functioned as both a technology of surveillance and a technology of memory. And you write, I'm quoting directly from the book, since many individuals targeted in one political campaign had been activists in a prior campaign, I argue that a memorial museum of the Maoist era must reckon with this implication between victimhood and perpetration, revolutionaries and revolutionized, motivating ideals and human costs. Could you tell our listeners more about this? What did it mean to be a victim or to be complicit during the Maoist era? And why is it so relevant to the Memorial Museum? 
So indeed, um, so with the second chapter, it continues the concern with um, archival documents, especially police files, but it shifts the focus from victimhood to uh, to issues of guilt and complicity. Um, and so the official version, the official sort of historiography, how does it um, account for um, the violence of the um, Mao era or the Cultural Revolution? Right after the Cultural Revolution, you have uh, basically this grand indictment of the Gang of Four, uh, Jiang Qing, Lin Biao, and so on. So the political elite become the main culprits for everything that had happened um, you know, in the official historiography. And then, uh, of course, among, among the people, people were also pinning blame on Mao. And even to this day, if you read about the Mao era and in like Western media would probably blame Mao as the visionary dictator that's like responsible for all the catastrophes of the Mao era. Um, but in the, so when uh, the writer Ba Jing actually, the, um, who, Kind of in, uh, whose idea for a cultural revolution museum was also at the origins for for this book of a memorial museum of the Mao era. Um, he was really also th- conceiving of the museum as a space of reflection and also maybe confession, also reflecting on complicity, on mass participation. So um, I very much agree that a memorial museum cannot just be you know singling out a few. Um, villains who are uh, historical villains that we can um, blame everything on, but also draw attention to mass participation and complicity in uh, in the violence of this period. And I'm particularly intrigued by the violence of the spoken and written denunciations as a practice. And um, this might be most prominent during the Cultural Revolution when people are just writing the character posters against, um, you know, denouncing both class enemies that were designated from above, but also the people who might be close to themselves, their even neighbors, colleagues, family members. And um, in this time, to be revolutionary was precisely to be merciless towards counter-revolutionaries. Um, but even before the 1966, before the Cultural Revolution, every political campaign had launched almost a kind of a graphomania among the literate uh, population, um, writing confessions and denunciations among those involved. So, um, and everybody who is affiliated somehow with a state work unit or school had a personnel file to which they had to contribute, like autobiographies, confessions, reports. And their reports, um, if they touch on the less than counter, uh, less than revolutionary past of others in their social network, uh, this actually can become kind of a de facto denunciation, even if they don't intend it. So I, I heard similar stories from my grandfather, who was um, who had to like write down all his social relationships, including like who his cousins were, and then the, some of that became like when when he mentioned that one of his cousins was. Um, uh, used to work for the, the Nationalist Party, that became an incriminating piece of evidence to uh, that actually sent his cousin into exile. And he felt really, really guilty about this um, f- for throughout his life. And uh, so his um, historical and cu- current counter-revolutionaries are pretty much made through the written word. And you can like mm-hmm. sentence somebody to exile or to prison um, by writing down 
um, their their backgrounds, and that um, is uh, gets to what I mean by like this archival regime of memories, where the archive or the personnel file becomes um, extremely powerful in ruling over um, your own like social networks, and um, and that um, the written word also um, took on extraordinary powers where if you're writing about someone else, uh, that can actually bring them into trouble. And yet you had to write. So this graphomania um, created a network of surveillance and this network of um, complicity. Um, and we talk about surveillance a lot nowadays uh, in terms of computer networks, surveillance cameras, and all this advanced technology but in the Maoist period, what you had instead was the network of eyes, ears, and writing hands that really contributed to like mass participation in surveillance and violence. And that also has a utopian goal, of course, of purify the revolutionary ranks of class enemies. Um, but this surveillance system really inhibited, in some ways, personal record keeping. Like everyone was writing diaries, knowing that the diaries are not really private. Maybe somebody's going to read them. And then, but at the same time, because you had to produce these kinds of reports, they're involuntarily also producing testimony and memory for later generations. So my hope for both this chapter and the um, the earlier chapter on Linjiao is to look beyond public culture of the Mao period and looking into these closed archives as a resource for curating uh, memorial exhibits. Yeah, and then in chapter three and four, which follow, you move um, from looking at textual to more visual archives. Um, mm -hmm. Chapter three, in particular, titled Utopian Photographs, starts with two um, photo ex exhibits. Exhibit A is an image of happy children standing on top of a rice paddy field taken in Hubei province and featured, which was then featured on the front page of People's Daily in 1958. And then you have Exhibit B, which is an image of a skinny boy with a begging bowl taken in 1946 for Life magazine, which was also then later reused in the front cover of Frank Dickerter's book, Mao's Great Famine. What do these two exhibits, these photo exhibitions and other photos of the Maoist era tell us about visual evidence and memory making? Yeah, so um, the first photo was, um, I think it was even used in a lot of Chinese um, history textbooks to this day um, as a kind of one photo that signifies the Great Leap Forward. And it shows these children that are jumping on this thickly planted rice paddy, um, almost as if it's like a, a trampoline because, you know, the harvest has yielded so much. And, it, and this photo at the time was mass produced in newspapers and magazines and was also kind of a model for people's coming throughout China to create very similar kind of photo ops by actually, um, you know, you remove the seedlings from maybe 20 or 30 other rice paddies, plant them all together. So in order to create this photo op, you literally destroy crops. And also, even if you didn't, you are obliging the communes to surrender whatever grain they have as a kind of a surplus to the, to the state. Um, so uh, I chose this photo to begin this uh, chapter on photography of the Great Leap Forward because it shows not only how utopian photographs are 
manipulating kind of truth, but also they they're they're in some ways quite lethal, right? So they not only fail to witness and record, but in fact contributed to uh, the famine that that occurred afterwards. And then the second exhibit I wanted to use um, because um, so uh, so the kind of a best-selling Mao's Great Famine, this this history book by uh, Frank de Coulter, um, features an image, the, the first edition of it features an image that's not from the Great Leap Forward period, but a photo that was taken 13 years earlier um, by Life magazine um, photojournalist. And um, there's actually a reason why that photo was used. And I, I think I, there's a way to justify it, but then you know, um, one can say, why do you use an anachronistic photo to stand for something that happened so many years later? But it actually points to the absence of um, famine images from the period. So how can a famine that killed tens of millions not leave behind, you know, a single testimonial photograph? So this whole chapter tries to grapple with this paradox of um, this bounty of propaganda photos and the absence of famine images when it comes to the to the Great Leap, and I'm trying to um, my uh, I came, I came to this basically wanting to understand what what is it that um, why is it that photographers didn't take photographs of what was happening on the ground and how were these like staged photographs made. Um, and what actually surprised me in the whole research process was just how much uh, journal, photojournalism and um, even amateur photography was flourishing and expanding um, in this in this period. Um, and um, pro- uh, so professional photographers were, were urged to go to the countryside and take pictures of the laboring people and in, in a sense to bear witness to revolutionary miracles. And um, uh, photographic technology in terms of domestic production was also flourishing at the time. So amateur photographers at the county level, some peasants even had access to cameras for the first time. But this kind of expansion of uh, photographic technology also coincided with the narrowing of conventions, of visual conventions. And to be patriotic, photographers had to create very proud and dignified images of the Chinese people, uh, whereas any images of hunger, destitution, poverty would have harkened back to like um, a time of imperialist photography of, you know, of Chinese people as backward and savage, that type of iconography. So that really became quite taboo. But in terms of photography serving as then the visual evidence for this period, particularly the Great Leap, um, I was interested in two different modes of testimony. So photography was asked to serve as visual testimony. Um, I'm calling it visual testimony of revolutionary faith. So there, um, it's almost there's something like quasi-religious about this. And so um, they're supposed to show what the future what a communist future should look like. So not reality as it was, but reality as it should be. And um, these testimonies of revolutionary faith or to revolutionary miracles uh, might also help us rethink Maoist propaganda, not just as lies or manipulation, but also as a kind of proselytization that's amplified by mass media. 
Um, so photography was not there to document, to promote, but also to promote production, to make a better future. So, you know, labor models would be photographed at this point. Um, sometimes they're photographed like without film, I think, like that this is an anecdote I heard. I'm not sure how true it was that they're just like, they're t- they take photography was a way to honor um, model workers. Um, and at the same time, there was also a lot of um, manipulation of photographs in uh, the form of photo montages that makes uh, photographs look almost like New Year prints. And this kind of um, these testimonies of revolutionary faith were very much at odds with any possible like famine images you would have afterwards um, or, you know, images that are less than um, vibrant or euphoric um, have been condemned in this period as naturalism, which only captured, you know, accidental phenomena and didn't speak to this higher truth. So um, these kinds of photographic conventions had obstructed the witnessing and documentation of failure, atrocities, and even everyday life under um, actually existing socialism. So my conclusion is to suggest some alternative ways to work with the photographic resources that we do have, um, including like a slow viewing and deconstruction of propaganda images. So the the image of the children jumping on the rice paddy is an image that I actually returned. I went to look for that rice paddy and interviewed uh, an, an old lady who was like bringing journalists and reporters to that rice paddy. And she talked about how it was made. And I think that this kind of like looking at the production of images will help us um, view images, not just like in a a quick and expedient way, but rather to see them in, um, in terms of how they were made and how they can actually also provide a kind of testimony to, to, to this period, even if, you know, we, we can't see them as just windows onto the past. Yeah, and this this um, goes into to the next chapter, chapter four, titled Foreign Lenses, where you look at this um, theme of production of images um, when, when it was a foreigner, basically bringing in the lens to film China at the time. And you basically... Um, Form your chapter around um, two two films, so Antonioni's Zhongguo and Ivan's How Yukong Moved the Mountains, so based on Yukong Yishan. Um, what was relevant about these foreign films depicting China at the time, and what do they tell us about the documentation and transmission of the socialist past? Yeah, thank you. So I guess uh, thinking about like a memorial museum in more literal terms, um, oftentimes you have exhibits that show like audiovisual images, whether it's like historical footage or people talking like film testimonies, right? These are very compelling exhibits in any memorial museum. You often also have like an auditorium where certain films are being played. So that kind of raises a question of what kind of Exhibits. What kind of audiovisual resources can we use to put into this uh, um, memorial museum of the Mao era, uh, especially when film was so tightly controlled by the state, even more so than photography, right? So uh, maybe ordinary people had a camera um, at home, but um, you know, but almost nobody had like movie cameras. So um, everything, all the um, documentary films that were made in the in the Mao era had to serve the state's um, official purposes of um, propaganda purposes too. So what kind of alternatives might we have or how can we um, 
rewatch those kind of propaganda films in a different ways. I'm picking these two very long documentaries by European filmmakers. So the Antonioni film, uh, Zhongguo, is actually four hours long. And the uh, How You Go Move the Mountains is a kind of a series of 12 films that was more than 12 hours altogether. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually seeing... So they're not necessarily films you would watch from beginning to end, but um, but they're, they're more like an audiovisual archive that you can draw on from the Cultural Revolution period that's different from official newsreels. But again, they're not transparent windows onto 1970s China, uh, but it's more that these foreign filmmakers didn't follow the usual conventions and formulas of how you go about making a documentary film. So actually afterwards, there was a nationwide campaign and criticism of Antonioni's film. Um, And so um, all the conflicts that occurred at the production and the reception stages are quite revealing of how images were made in this period, uh, going back to this idea of media ecology. And they provide us a, a critical lens with which to um, examine other kinds of uh, cinematic legacies of the Mao era. Um, so a little bit more background, because like these filmmakers were, I mean, yours, Ivan, was, um, he actually had been to China before in 1938 and in the 1950s. He's almost an old old friend of the Communist Party. And by the um, during the Cultural Revolution, he thought that China had a really bad reputation in the West, and then Western media was still portraying China in these very backward, savage terms. There was a TV documentary from 1967 called "China: The Roots of Madness," and it's uh, so he thought that China needed a film to counteract these kinds of unjust images in uh, Western media, and he really wanted to use um, how you go move the mountains uh, to to present a panorama of a revolutionary China, a socialist China, that's also as an, a utopian alternative to Western capitalism. Uh, so in a sense, his film also presents this testimony of faith, um, also like showing proletarian power by showing how there's egalitarian relationships between workers and cadres and soldiers and officers, students and teachers, women and men. So it's not... Um, uh, there is an ideological lens that comes to to his film as well, where he's trying to show these transformed uh, revolutionary social relationships. Um, Antonioni was a little more, he was he didn't know very much about China at all. He was invited um, to make this film for an Italian um, television station. And he was very skeptical when he arrived of the very carefully um, orchestrated uh, itinerary that was presented by his hosts and um, and who were constantly stopping him from filming things that he wanted to film. For example, he wanted to go to a village and then um, it was evening. So he, uh, the next day he was going to come back. But when he came back, he saw that the whole village was repainted. So he got... <laughs> So he was like, well, I, I'm going to try. I wanted to capture the reality. I don't want to change the village because I'm going to film. And so he decided I'm not going to film here anymore. So he just like went off. He was very rude as a guest and took his film crew off the uh, official itinerary and went to like a neighboring village um, and then just started filming, right, without permission. And so, you know, violating all kinds of documentary ethics that we also consider. It's like, how can you do that without consent, basically? Um, but uh, of course, he was trying to get at oh, um, 
like a, a greater truth in in his mind. So all of this sort of the a lot of those conflicts were emerging even within his film. And then later on, when Mao's wife Jiang Ting saw the film, she thought this is uglifying of socialist China and really launched this nationwide campaign against the director. And everybody knew about Antonioni even without having seen the film. Um, and in, in the book, I actually compare Antonioni's images with some of the photo- photographs that were uh, taken in the same places where Antonioni was filming. So juxtaposing the correct way to represent the same things, you know, between Antonioni's uh, cinematography and um, China pictorial type of um, how, how does one correctly present Tiananmen Square or the Nanjing Bridge and so on. So, and but I think what's ironic is that the the film, particularly Antonioni's film, it wasn't really screened widely in China until a DVD release in the um, in the two thousands, and then like it was pirated everywhere. I saw it in every like video shop in the late two thousands, and viewers really loved it. They they thought this is almost like the home movie that we never had. And um, on on Douban, a reviewer said it's as if like. This young couple was getting married, and they asked a videographer to come and film their wedding. But the videographer, he was like filming the bride without makeup, and then all these poor relatives instead of the honored guests. So the couple went there; they were really mad at the videographer. But then, after so many years, they they dug up the tape again from the you know from their um their their uh from their basement, and then rediscovered. Wow. That's where their youth was. And there are all these details that their, you know, very polished cosmetic studio wedding photographs never captured. Mm-hmm. So uh, so the so the the fate of these films really changed too in terms of when when we think about how they function as cinematic memories of this period. Yeah, I think it's it's so fascinating. In, in your book, you have these images of of this juxtaposition of of the the, the screenshots from Antonioni's film and then comparing it to to the correct image um, or something published perhaps in the China pictorial or the like where for example you have this the village school um, presented in Zhongguo and then uh, which is kind of these zoomed in images of, of children you know looking a bit scared and concerned and and um, squatting down in these demolished um kind of sites and then juxtaposition juxtaposition of the correct image of a socialist kindergarten where um, kids are kind of in lines um, washing their hands and you know looking happy and very clean and you have these gleaming posters of socialist China in the background um, so just so, so the listeners know the book itself Utopian Ruins has these fantastic um, images um, where you can kind of Hold, grab on to 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 what what Tia is writing about and in more detail to really visualize um, visualize the argument in, in, through these images. Um, but in chapter five and six, you move away from vis- from the kind of the video and photographic form to look at how physical physical spaces and material relics also function as tangible testimonies of the Maoist era. And chapter five, titled um, "Factory Rubble." Um, in this chapter, you seek to answer the following question. Where do Chinese workers figure within the Memorial Museum of the Maoist era? Perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit more about this. 
Yeah. So um, my so my maternal grandparents were both workers in Shanghai's uh, state-owned factory. They were working in silk factories, um, and my uncles and aunts were also kind of members of this like working class, socialist working class. And so whenever they speak of their factories, I always felt like they were intensely nostalgic, especially when like the factories were slowing down, eventually went bankrupt. I think some workers were even going back to mourn their the, the death of. Their factories, um, and I think um, as a just a, as a class or as a group, um, industrial workers might be the the greatest beneficiary of Chinese socialism. So their factories are not just uh, places to work, but also a whole utopian ecosystem that provided almost like a cradle to coffin welfare system. And you know they had medical care, they had retirement pensions. Um, they had like bathhouses, gyms. Um, they had like auditoriums. That there was there was entertainment. There was also a strong sense of belonging for workers. To um, sometimes there's also sort of worker dormitories and so on. So it's like a, not just a place to work, but also a place to live and and a community that they belong to. And so um, scholars have already studied the nostalgia of workers, memories of workers, and their firsthand. Uh, memories of socialism. So my interest in this chapter was more in the mediation of their memories after, you know, their fates had been severed from the factories. So um, after socialist factories went bankrupt, actually, there the monumental spaces that were left behind or ruins um, actually attracted a lot of artists, photographers, and filmmakers, and even real estate developers. So the most famous cases would be like Beijing's 798, these like creative zones. Shanghai had an M50. Um, but, um, and then in Northeast too, some of the older factory districts have been converted into more commercial types of spaces. Um, but the commercialization or even some of the industrial museums that had been constructed in the very same spaces rarely really um, try to kind of pass down the memories and subjectivities of the workers who actually used to work there or inhabit those spaces and are no longer there. So um, so I decided eventually to turn to um, uh, still to uh, cinematic remediations or cinematic memorials to China's working class by focusing on three films that were made uh, between 2003 and uh, 2011. Um, one is Wang Bing, a, a nine-hour film, Rest of the Tracks, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, is, um, is really trying to almost like capture uh, the ruination of the factory and the ruins of the factory before it is completely wiped out and understanding the, this whole kind of ecosystem um, of the um, industrial district in Shenyang in northeast China. And then also uh, Jia Zhangke's uh, 24 City, which is um, uh, made in Chengdu, uh, based on the a, a factory that used to employ almost like a million um, workers along with their families and then was going um, bankrupt and was being transformed into a real estate development. And then Zhang Meng's uh, The Piano in a Factory, which is the only piece of fiction that I um, deal with, and, but it, it's very much shot on location in the ruins of um, industrial neighborhood. And this is about a father who um, whose child re- wants to play a 
play piano, but he can, he's a laid off worker and cannot afford uh, to buy her a piano. So he thought, well, we're steel workers and the piano in Chinese is gangxing, a instrument made out of steel. So why don't we build a piano? So he and his co-workers got together and actually tried to build a piano for, for the child. But the plot aside, the, a lot of the film is actually trying to capture the plight of the workers, but also the uh, the environment of um, what does it mean to be laid off in the 1990s. Um, so these films, they are in a sense kind of salvaging the rubble from socialist factories and preserving them almost in a very museum-like aesthetic in terms of their um, cinematic strategies. But they also collected testimonies from workers that... Um, is a mixture of emotions of pride and idealism, but also endurance and sacrifice. So it's not a, a very straightforward sense of either nostalgia or trauma. It adds um, greater nuance to viewing the factory as just a symbol of Mao's working class. So, um, I, so this basically this chapter sort of tur- turns the factory into a protagonist, but considers its um, remediation through film and also the way that these films were um, were received actually not just by the worker class generation but by the children so a lot of the comments on these films on um uh doban like cinephilia uh, these cinephiles who are watching them and then watching them with their parents mm-hmm. are having also kind of generating more memories through commentary and discussion of the films um, in in a sense, so, um, so there's a kind of a ver- virtual commemoration taking place um, by virtue of watching watching these films. So um, I, I found them to be actually more compelling than the actual industrial museums that have been um, f- that have been uh, built in the in the um, locations of the factories. Yeah, and and you continue looking at this idea of the material ruins of the socialists of, of Chinese socialism in chapter six, titled "Museums and Memorials." And in this chapter, you look at um, kind of the physical ruins as memor- memorabilia collections that commemorate the Maoist era. And up till now, most of the, the five chapters have focused on different ruptures, whether it's textual archives or audio, audiovisual records. And in chapter six, you consider the memorial museum in more literal terms. So asking questions such as how do physical spaces and tangible artifacts mediate testimony and memory in different ways, um, different from words and images? Perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit more about these museums, the physical places of museum that museums are based in in present day China, which kind of speak to this material ruin of Chinese socialism. Yeah, thank you. So um, this last um, body chapter of the book uh, quite literally focuses on um, like physical museums and memorials that exist in within Chinese territory. Um, I do begin with a more conceptual genealogy of this cultural revolution museum idea as I was conceived by the writer Ba Jing, um, who also was kind of inspired through his international visits to other memorial museums around the world. And particularly, he, he went to Auschwitz in uh, 1950s, and then he, went, he visited Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the 1980s, and that really influenced his thinking about that China also needs a memorial museum, a cultural revolution museum. 
Um, but um, ha- when he proposes that there's a lot of um, resonance, everyone said, yes, we do as well. But officially, this was not obviously not done. And if you go to Tiananmen Square today, even though there's the Museum of China, there used to be like a, a revolutionary history museum at Tiananmen Square. But um, a lot of it's still pre-1950, 1949 history. And the Mao era is really kind of skimmed over in, in, that, um, in the current exhibitions. So where can we find kind of heritage, this um, uh, Maoist heritage in China? Um, and I would suggest that they are actually scattered all over China in different kinds of places, um, especially in terms of private collections. So um, I, I, the, the bulk of the chapter is actually a guided tour of specific memorial sites where you can encounter Maoist heritage in a very tangible form. And I chose to start in Sichuan uh, with a little town called Anren. It's about an hour's drive away from, from Chengdu. And it's, um, it hosts the most famous local museum from the Mao era. It was uh, established already in the 1950s. Uh, the former landlord, Liu Wenzhai, the local landlord, actually, he had his house you know, or his manor um, was, um, became nationwide famous in the 60s because it was hosting this sculpture series called Ren Collection Courtyard. Um, and the purpose of the museum at the time was to show the hell of pre-revolutionary old society and the evil deeds of landlords so that the revolutionary masses would never forget class struggle. Um, and today, uh, it's this, this museum actually has survived into the present day and still receives many visitors. And of course, the narrative has changed in the meantime. But then you can kind of see how uh, the idea of like, Memorial museums that you know shows a, like almost like a horror chamber, very of um, of suffering is can be very emotionally manipulative, and um, um, it inspired a lot of righteous outrage in the in the nineteen sixties. Um, these kinds of exhibits of the cruelty of the landlord. So how do we today? Uh, construct a museum about the sufferings from the Mao era without replicating that kind of uh, simplistic, uh, righteous outrage and emotional ma- manipulation of horror chambers um, is something I raise in the in this in this section. But then, um, what was quite intriguing about this town is that not only does it host this museum of class struggle, it also has the largest private museum in China. Uh, founded by uh, Fan Dianchuan, who's a um, real estate tycoon and um, kind of a, the new landlord in town. Um, and he has amassed enormous collections of artifacts um, focusing on World War II and Cultural Revolution. So all kinds of posters and clocks, everyday material objects that are connected to are that are, are from the Maoist period. And um, initially, I think he, he was interested in calling his museum also a cultural revolution museum, but that became too sensitive. So he calls it the Red Age series. Um, and the museums are of everyday artifacts. There's like a whole exhibition hall of uh, Mao badges, seals and clocks. There's one devoted to porcelain of this period. Um, there's another really fascinating museum filled with mirrors. Um, my favorite is actually a more thematic museum. It's a museum of send down youth of like red guards were sent to the countryside in, from like 19, 
60s to the 1970s, and there's um, a central installation of um, broken mirrors amidst these dusty farm tools that really speak to the hopes and the disenchantment of the movement at the same time. But um, outside of these kind of exhibition halls, the museum actually has the atmosphere of a theme park. You can have a lot of fun there. You can stay at the Red Guard Inn, take pictures, you know, with the Red Guard uniforms. You can buy paraphernalia, you know, clothing, eat at the People's Coming restaurant and purchase Cultural Revolution souvenirs. So there's also been condemnation of saying, well, is this kind of nostalgic commodification of Cultural Revolution artifacts really a form of historical memory or is it forgetting? Because there are also Cultural Revolution restaurants, like theme restaurants in almost every city and even county seat I've been to. So yeah, you can really consume nostalgia for the revolution, but a lot of historical details are of course missing. So, um, so going from these more nostalgic and commodified spaces, I also look at a number of trauma sites, um, which are, um, you know, sites of like um, labor reform camps in, in Gansu. There's a May 7th cadre school in Hubei, also kind of where intellectuals were sent down in the 1960s and 70s. There's a Red Guard graveyard in Chongqing and a Cultural Revolution Memorial Park in Shantou. Um, all of these kinds of trauma sites are trying to transform the ruins of um, a lot of them are also like graveyards, basically, of um, people who had died in this period into memorials, but always ran up against um, um, local inter- um, government um, hindrance. And because of censorship, they're very, very marginalized. Very few people go there. So in a way, they're, um, the, the commemorative vigilance for these sites depend on the few visitors who then take pictures and then take, you know, and then remediate them through um, internet and, you know, post them, write about their, their journeys. But the precarious survival of these sites still suggests that um, this kind of state-sponsored amnesia of the Maoist past is not ubiquitous, nor is it omnipotent, that there is a possibility to create memorial sites that are physical and that are inspiring kind of um, reflection over this period beyond what is presented in official historiography and textbooks. Yeah, and that really brings us to the epilogue of your of your book. So chapter nine titled Notes for Future Curators, and this really looks at more the kind of the practice behind if there would be a possibility or, or, or taking with this possibility to create uh, memorial sites. Um, could you tell our listeners a brief um, overview of some of the notes you've compiled in this chapter, Notes for Future Curators? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I was thinking, I mean, this book is really not meant to be a comprehensive or encyclopedic, um, you know, like, memorial monument for uh, the entire, That's that would be an impossible task, but it's almost more like an invitation to um, readers to think about how they would curate their own memorial exhibits based on the fragments and shards of memories that they can come across in their own way. And I, I guess this also gets to, you know, thinking about academic books of not having just a critical function, but also a constructive role to play. Um, with my last book, actually, I was um, with Shanghai Homes. I, I 
ask readers also to excavate where they stand and write down the own micro histories of families and neighborhoods. Um, in, in, in the same vein, I guess this book also calls on readers to think about how you would curate memories for, um, from these fragments of the past. Um, so um, I maybe just a, a word about, but, but I do sort of synthesize my curatorial method of utopian ruins as um, a way to attend at the same time to revolutions um, motivating ideals and to its human costs. So if utopia um, consists of visions that have yet to be realized, it's kind of futuristic, anticipatory. Ruins are retrospective, looking at traces of what has already been destroyed. So um, I think it's quite important to keep these kinds of two almost contradictory visions in mind of thinking about the dream world and catastrophe of this period, anticipation and retrospection, propaganda and testimony, and sort of to hold them um, in the in the same lens. And uh, so, um, in the epilogue, I also distill this kind of curatorial method into more active verbs of, you know, digging, excavating the past, uh, trying to figure out how utopian blueprints came to ruin, um, and then salvaging utopian impulses from the ruins. Um, but also account for um, the processes of uh, violence, how they came to be. Um, and then thinking about exhibit in two different senses, because, uh, of course, you would be taking the public culture from the period. A lot of it's made for propaganda purposes. But apart from just redisplaying, um, say, like Maoist cinema from this period, uh, we have to interrogate how such propaganda can function as evidence um, and then bring into conversation. So my fourth verb is converse, is to mediate conversations between contested memories, including nostalgic and traumatic memories. And finally, to imagine and ask what if questions, are there different paths to the same ideals uh, without incurring the same uh, human cause? Because even someone like Lin Zhao and Nigandu treated in the first, like victims of the revolutionary process, they started off as revolutionaries. And what is it that about their idealistic energies that got wasted? What happened in this process? I think it's really important to, to go back to those historical moments and figure out when wrong at every step. So in terms of concrete proposals in the notes, uh, a lot of them are actually inspired by memorial culture in other parts of the world. Um, so um, I'm actually in Germany now, and um, there are you know, many, many um, uh, stones that are like little memorials that are laid into the pavement by a single artist to commemorate the individual victims of national socialism right in front of their addresses like their former addresses of choice. So you kind of almost like stumble over these little memorial plaques and stones um, and are uh, and are reminded of these historical layers. And I, I, I really like these particular kinds of stumbling stone monuments because they're so localized and so, um, and they're more effective in some ways than a single national monument um, because they invoke um, historical memory discussion at a very local level. And by the same token um, of trying to like remind the present of what happened in the past um, is um, I was inspired by the statue parks in 
the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe as all these communist leaders like Lenin and Stalin, they were removed from their pedestals and put into memorial parks, uh, sometimes called graveyards of fallen monuments. Um, this is actually quite also relevant for last year because there were all these racist monuments that had been removed throughout the world, especially in the United States. And what do you do with those removed monuments and statues? You, you can actually put them somewhere and think about like turn that into a space of reflection. Um, in China, it might be hard to imagine, say, like putting like Mao statues in or socialist realist uh, statues into a memorial park next to the Yuanmingyuan Ruins Park. But um, the very preservation of like, you know, writings on the wall or propaganda images, um, um, they can also enhance historical consciousness, right, by highlighting the, the palimpsestic history of a place. Um, but, um, you know, and if public memorial art is still quite sensitive, there are also more uh, subtle and less confrontational exhibitions um, in private galleries. So I think it would be really fun to have like a museum of a socialist childhood with the toys that people played with. And then uh, I, I was also been thinking a lot about multi-sensory uh, exhibits. So exhibits that are not only to be seen, but also listened to and smelled and tasted and touched. Um, I'm working more on sound nowadays, but I, I don't touch more much on it in, in the book, but like a history of radio loudspeakers or, or uh, revolutionary songs would be like a great um, um, thing to exhibit. And in terms of smell and taste, you know, why not um, add a critical dimension to these cultural revolution themed restaurants by serving not just the retrospectively invented um, you know, actually quite delicious foods that people can eat there, but the actual menus of people's canteens or collecting maybe the recipes of the famine from the period or thinking about a museum of fashion from the Maoist period, the things that people wore when cloth was rationed, right? Mm -hmm. So in a way, we can take a cue from Maoist exhibition practices of, you know, like eating bitterness meals or like collecting local histories, and to make this kind of memorialization project more of a grassroots and local effort, rather than saying that there has to be a single narrative of how we understand this entire period. Yeah, I really, I really like that. And, I, and just now, as you were talking, especially at the beginning, when you're talking about this kind of the salvaging of the memory or these kind of active verbs that people, um, people can take on to. To, to 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 kind of become curators themselves um this kind of a return to where this where our discussion started with this idea of gardening and cultivating a garden and all the kind of sensorial um work that goes into um well having a garden and, and the enjoyment of, of of watching vegetation or or flowers growing and you know what what becomes of that as seasons change um so just now as you were talking especially this notion of sound i think that the sensorial elements of of museum spaces is, is really fascinating and something that your book really does um kind of touch upon as i mentioned because there is um there, you do invite the reader to um, engage with the images, engage with these um, audiovisual um, material that that you that you analyze in depth academically, but also on a very kind of creative level as well. So on this on this kind of <laughs> conversation of, of sensorial, um, you mentioned sound just now. Um, perhaps 
Before we conclude our conversation, do you mind talking a bit more about what you're working on and thinking about these days? Um, what are your current projects and what have you been doing since Utopian Ruins was published? Thank you. Yeah, I'm actually about to, Utopia Ruins took a really long time to come. I had a lot of revisions, so I'm actually almost done with the next book. And I'm oh hoping... <laughs> so, uh, it, the next book is actually about uh, like also cinematic memories from the Maoist period, and it's a cultural history of film exhibition, reception, and audiences um, from Mao's China. So uh, for a long time, like when I, I've been teaching uh, film, um, especially East Asian cinema, um, also with a focus on China and Sinophone areas. And a lot of the films that are teachable are not from the socialist period, mostly because they say, the students would say, well, it's so propagandistic, it's so didactic, you know, like we can't really like, watch this or they're not considered the classics of Chinese cinema. But then when I talk to people who about their memories of like in terms of for them, the golden age of cinema was still from the 50s to the 70s in this Maoist periods. So what is it that fascinated them about these films? What is it that was part of their cinematic experiences that we maybe as retrospective viewers cannot get from just watching the film texts became like a, a big question for me as I, so I've been like actually interviewing um, a lot of um, film projectionists and also film audiences uh, from different parts of China uh, going beyond, you know, Shanghai and uh, like urban circles, but also going to the countryside and trying to understand what cinema meant and what cinema was uh, for audiences um, uh, in throughout this period, and what also what was the impact of film, uh, trying to understand its power and enchantment. Um, so and 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 I think um, so. That's what the book project is going to be about: is uh, the way that. Um, not just the film texts themselves, but also how films were shown and how they were locally understood. Um, the, the open air cinema practices, getting up in the middle of the night to watch certain films and then how audiences who are very familiar with formulaic propaganda films were actually uh, changing the stories among themselves. So the discourse and practices, experiences and memories of people vis-a-vis um, -vis cinema from this period. Um, so I also draw on a lot of historical archives and, um, and ethnographic fieldwork for this. Um, but I, I'm also um, uh, concerned about, in terms of theoretically, how do we excavate sort of Chinese film theories apart from just applying Western film theories? Mm -hmm. And how does the socialist experience change our, like, um, given understandings of what is cinema or where is cinema, how how do we rewrite the history of this period? So uh, the argument in the kind of a nutshell is to rethink the communist revolution as a media revolution um, and also to rethink cinema as almost like a, a spirit medium uh, enacting um, that, that turn audiences into congregations, contributed to the to the Mao cult, and uh, even exorcised uh, class enemies. Um, so, so because um, this, this the book project now is mostly focused on cinema, but I've also taken interest in sound, as mentioned earlier. So, um, I was uh, I have an article about like radios and loudspeakers. Um, in 20th century China, but I'm thinking about developing this into a larger cultural history of noise mm -hmm. 
in uh, 20th century China. So uh, that's in the very preliminary stages, but that's something I'm quite excited about right now. So. Well, it does sound really exciting, such a fascinating project. And um, do you have um, um, uh, an estimation of when this book you're working on now will be released, just so we can pay attention to to reading reading your work? Um, I, well, thank you. I, I think I will. Um, I, I, I'm about like maybe like in two months or so, I might be able to submit it. Wow. I don't know, like production, I take another sometime you know if yeah. assuming things right. go smoothly right. so hopefully. that's so impressive um that's really impressive considering utopian ruins must have been such a such a big project it's it, the, the number of layers there the kind of the personal the academic and the kind of creative realms that you enter it's such a rich study and i can imagine it you gave you you had to give a lot of yourself to to, to accomplish um getting it to where it is now. So it's really, really inspirational that you're already working on so many other projects. Um, and they all sound so intriguing and timely. So we all really look um, forward to, to, to reading more of, of what, what lies ahead. Um, for now, I wanted to thank you for, for putting time aside today and joining, um, joining me to talk about your work. I've really enjoyed our conversation, GM. Me too. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye.